Let us read in God's Word this morning a portion of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to begin reading at verse 57. We'll read verses 57 through 80. Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. I have thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. At midnight I will give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes." Thou hast dealt well with Thy servant, O Lord, according unto Thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed Thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept Thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me Thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep Thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me, and those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes, that I be not ashamed. Thus far we read God's holy and an errant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. It's on the basis of the word of God that we read in Psalm 119 and many other passages of scripture as well that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2.
which day two has above it the heading, the first part of the misery of man. Question three, whence knowest thou thy misery? Answer, out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, at first glance it hardly seems that the instruction given unto us in Lord's Day 2 fits with what is the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism. The theme is, as you know full well, comfort. I only comfort in life and in death is that I belong unto Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 2, with its question about misery and about how you, whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God, and then its follow-up question, are you able to keep the law of God? Are you able to keep these things perfectly? And its answer in no wise, for I'm prone to hate both God and the neighbor, seems to be in conflict with the theme of the catechism, which is comfort. And it begs the question, who would even want to give a study, a careful and deliberate and intentional study of our misery. Is it not the case that we are ready without having a form of instruction about knowing our misery? We already do keenly experience and feel misery. Everybody upon this earth experiences misery. The old experience it and the young experience it. The rich have misery in their lives and the poor have misery in their lives. Even children, with all of their joy and mirth and laughter, already begin to experience misery upon this earth. And so understanding then that misery is something that everybody upon this earth already has some level of awareness of, why then does the catechism take, as its second, the second Lord's Day of it, the time to give instruction about how we know our misery? Whence knowest thou thy misery? It is my hope and prayer for you, beloved that throughout the course of this sermon, God 
would teach us the importance of understanding correctly, according from God's Word, what is our misery. This is in no way to deny or even minimize the fact that you already know misery. But this set before us what is the right standard for evaluating that misery. And that standard is the law of God. We use that as our theme this morning, the law of God. First, we'll take note of the loving character of the law of God, loving. Second, how that law of God convicts us, convicting. And third, how that law of God then reveals unto us our need for a Savior, revealing. The law of God, loving, convicting, revealing. If we are to understand how the law of God is to be that standard by which man knows and understands his misery, we must first understand something generally of the character and of the origin of this law of God. Where does this law come from and what is the law? When the Catechism speaks of us knowing our misery out of the law of God, the Catechism is not there speaking narrowly of strictly only the Mosaic law. It is not confined to the Ten Commandments, what we call the moral law of God. Nor, when the Catechism speaks of the law of God, is it limited to even the ceremonial laws and the civil laws that governed the nation of Israel. So what is the catechism speaking of then when it speaks of the law of God? The law which reveals unto us our misery is to be understood thus. It is the will of God or the desire of of God, as that will of God has application for the creature, which will of God is best for the creature? That's that's the basic understanding here of what the law of God is. It is that will or desire of God, as that will and desire of God has application for the creature, which will of God is best for the creature. And so we must understand then that the law of God is not simply a list of rules. It's not simply a code of conduct that this is how you are to behave in this situation and then this is how you are to behave in this other situation. It's not just teaching us how we are to live in relationships with other members whom God has put in our pathway. And certainly, the law of God is not to be understood as an arbitrary sense of rules that God wanted forcefully to impose upon His people for their misconduct, for their sins in the wilderness. 
It wasn't that God saw the sins of the Israelites as they worshipped that golden calf, and that then God, in some sense of anger or retaliation, decided to impose these strict rules upon the Israelites and give unto them that Mosaic law. But the law of God is rooted in the eternal and unchangeable counsel of God. It's His will. It's his desire, as that law, as that will applies unto the creature. And then we said, and that will is what is best for the creature. The law is what is best for me. And we don't oftentimes think of the law in that regard, that the law is what is best for me. The law can seem strict to us. The law can seem to, at times, even impose upon us. It intrudes in our lives in ways that we would rather the law not intrude on our lives. The law limits us, prevents us from engaging in certain behavior. And sometimes it seems as if, if only we could engage in this behavior, that then we would have more happiness. But the law stands there as a wall, preventing us from enjoying that happiness. Is the law truly what is best for us. It is. And we can begin to understand this even as we observe the laws of creation, what man calls natural laws. Think, for example, of a fish. God created that fish, certain laws that govern it, And that fish is created by God, designed by God to live in water. And as long as that fish abides by that rule of staying in water, the fish is able through its gills to take in oxygen from the water so that that fish can live and thrive in the water. But what happens as soon as you take that fish out of the water? It dies. The same, beloved, is true for you and for me spiritually. The law is what is best for us. And as long as we abide in those laws, as long as there is perfect conformity to those laws, then there is life. But as soon as one goes outside of those laws, does something that is contrary to the expressed will of God as it applies to our lives, there is death. The psalmist understood this, and thus the psalmist was hungry for instruction in the law of God. Psalm 119, verse 66, Teach me, Good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. 
And then verse 77, Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. That generally is what the law of God is. It's His will, it's His desire, not simply an arbitrary code or rules that are to govern us. But now, beloved, let us be more specific in understanding what the law of God is. The Scriptures make clear unto us, Jesus makes clear unto us in His words in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, that at the heart of the law there is one thing, and that is love. The law of God is the law of love. And this is not just something that was novel to the New Testament. It's not something that Jesus Christ introduced as a new concept to His disciples and to His followers when they approached Him and asked Him, which is the great commandment. It wasn't as if throughout all of the Old Testament, for thousands of years, the law was a curse unto them. But then Jesus Christ in the New Testament, change the nature of the law. No, already in the Old Testament, the duty and the requirement of the law was love. We read that this morning in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Rather, the summary of the law given in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And then Jesus Christ in the New Testament confirmed what had already been established as a principal truth in the Old Testament that the law of God is Love. That's question and answer four of the Catechism. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us briefly, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And so two things then that we understand from this, that we derive from this truth that the law of God is love. The first thing that we are to understand is that the origin or the source of the law is love. It is because of God's gracious care for His children. It is because God loves you that God has given unto you His Law. It would be unloving of God to hide from you His law. The psalmist in Psalm 119 speaks of the grace of God as God teaches unto us His law. Not a verse that we read, but earlier in the psalm, Psalm 119, verse 29. 
Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. That God gives unto us the law in His grace means that we don't deserve the law. That we forfeit any right to this law. That God could have left us to our own condemnation and destruction in not giving unto us the law. But God in His grace gives unto us the law. And that becomes more clear to us when we evaluate the timing at which God gave to the Old Testament Israelites that law of Moses. God gave unto them that law on Mount Sinai after God had delivered them out of Egypt. The law law of Moses begins that way, that I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of bondage, out of Egypt. God already had been gracious unto the Israelites in redeeming them from their captivity. And then subsequent to their deliverance from captivity, God in grace gave unto them the law, which law taught them how they were to live as God's covenant servants and God's covenant nation. God did not give unto the Israelites the law in order to show them how they might earn righteousness with God. God did not give unto the Israelites the law so that they could, by their adherence to that law, please God and again earn God's favor and God's satisfaction in them as a nation. But God had already graciously delivered them from their sins and then God gave unto them the law. That the law is love means, beloved, that the law has a loving source and origin. It's because of His love for you that He gives you the law. Second, that the law is love means this, beloved, that the goal or the aim, the purpose of the law is love. We might say that the law goes from love to love. The law having a loving source and origin in the eternal counsel of God comes from a God of the God of love. And the law points us unto love. This is the requirement of the law. This was the answer that Jesus Christ gave to the pointing question that was given unto Him. Master, which is the great commandment? That question certainly was not given unto Jesus Christ in love. It wasn't because the asker genuinely wanted to understand which was the great commandment. But it was because the questioner wanted to trap Jesus Christ had wanted Jesus Christ to set one commandment over against the other commandments. But Jesus Christ, with divine wisdom, got right to the heart of the matter and answered that question, which is the great commandment with this? Love. Love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments... 
hang all the law and the prophets. I can remember as a young boy struggling with understanding what it means that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It seems to raise in one's mind a rather negative image. I had in my mind thoughts of Old Testament prophets having a noose around their neck, about ready to be hung by the commandments. But that's in no way the meaning here of Jesus Christ when He says, and these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Rather, the idea here is that the law and the prophets are suspended or held up upon these pillars. And the pillars are, on the one hand, love God, and the second one, which comes from the first commandment, is love the neighbor as you love yourself, as thyself. On those two pillars then hangs all of the law and all of the instruction of the Old Testament prophets. It's love for God and love for the neighbor which holds up the weight of the rest of the law of God. Just as outside of this building, there are those two white pillars that hold up the roof over the entryway as one comes into this building. And without those two white pillars, the weight of the roof would cause it to collapse and come down. Well, so it is then that all of the law and all of the commandments that God has given unto us rest upon and hang upon these two commandments. Love God and love the neighbor. This drives home the point, does it not, that the law of God is not just regulations, a code of conduct. But the law is the will, the desire of God Himself as it applies to us as children. God's will is that you would love Him and love the neighbor. And then we see how convicting this law of God is. And we understand that the law is love, has its origin in love, and its requirement is love. Then the catechism comes with the convicting question of the fifth question and answer. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? You know why. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Forceful words, strong words, words that we would hardly even dare to say. 
I'm prone to hate God and the neighbor. But hasn't there been some improvement upon me? Hasn't there been some growth in me all these years of receiving instruction from the Word of God? Years of catechism? Years of coming to worship services? Years of striving against and fighting against sin? Hasn't there been some advancement in my nature so that I can get past saying what the catechism says here, that I am prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor? It seems almost blasphemous for me as a Christian to say something like this, that I am prone to hate the Almighty the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the One who with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm delivered the Israelites out of captivity and out of bondage, the One who in love sent His Son Jesus Christ down into this world in order that He might be despised and rejected of men to redeem me from the pit into which I have willfully plunged Myself. Now I, I as a born again, regenerated child of God, I am going to confess that by nature I hate God. The God who delivered me. And the neighbor whom God has put in my pathway. We do confess it. We confess it as Christians. And we confess it only as Christians. You see, the man of the world would never confess this. It is true, as we noted in the introduction, that the man of the world does have some sense of understanding that there's misery on this earth. One does not have to be a born-again child of God to know that there's grief and anguish, heartache and loss upon this earth. The man of the world understands that too. But what the man of the world fails to understand is the reason for his misery upon this earth is that he is prone to hate God and the neighbor. The man of the world would seek to apply a different standard by which he can evaluate the status of things upon this earth. Instead of having the law of God be the standard which determines what is best for us upon this earth. The man of the world would try to find a different standard. He might point perhaps to evolution and have evolution be the standard by which man's condition upon this earth is evaluated. And as he looks at evolution, man judges that there is continual and ongoing development and growth. There is advancement. Yes, there are, there are difficulties and there's hurt and there's loss upon this earth, but 
the evolutionist says, there is continual development. And so there's hope then for the future, according to the evolutionist, because things on this earth will continue to improve. And so the evolutionist then is quite pleased with how things are working out upon this earth. For as long as there is this slow but continual development, well, then things are working out the way that they ought to work. What's your standard by which you evaluate the condition of the things of this earth? Another man is inclined to take as his standard his status in comparison to the neighbor. He looks at what he has, the health he enjoys, the money he has, the power the influence, the family that he has, and he compares what he has with what the neighbor has. And he concludes, well, at least my condition is not as bad as what the neighbor's condition is. At least I have these things in life. And so he gives to himself a measure of earthly comfort as he compares his position to the neighbor's condition. What is, children of God, your standard for determining one's status upon this earth? The status is, or rather the standard is, the law of God. And as we stand before that law of God, we see that we are prone to hate. The regenerated, spirit-filled child of God confesses, I stand before the law. I see what the law requires of me. I know that it is my duty to love God with all of my strength, I know that my heart ought to overflow with gratitude unto God for the unspeakable gift of what He has given to us through Jesus Christ. I know that God is the covenant-keeping God who established that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and who continues to establish and maintain that covenant with believers and with their seed. I know that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. I know that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for me, and yet I am prone by nature to hate Him. How serious and how shameful is this truth? How serious is this matter of having a heart that is inclined to hate God? We're not simply confessing here that we are prone to stumble from time to time. We are not simply confessing here that well, at times I didn't have the right attitude toward God or toward the neighbor. 
But we are confessing here that we have willful and deliberate hatred of God by nature. That if it were possible, we would shake our fist in the face of Almighty God, turn against Him, and seek to overthrow His kingdom and His power and His glory as it is manifested to us. And how do we know that this is our natural response to God? How do we reveal that indeed we are those who are prone by nature to hate God? One might say, I don't shake my fist angrily at God. I don't wake up angry at God. And so this doesn't really apply to me. Then I ask you this question. How do you respond to trials and afflictions that are put in your life? Beloved, if we respond to trials and afflictions in our lives in any other way than thanking God for putting this chastisement, loving chastisement in our lives, then we show that by nature we are prone to hate God. How do we show that we are prone to hate God? How do you view His Word? How often do you turn to His Word? When God sends chastisement in our lives, do we first of all open up the Word? Or do we complain? Do we become bitter? Do we become upset about the circumstances of our lives? For 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. The very fact that by nature we do not turn to the revelation of God to us in the Holy Scriptures shows that by nature we are inclined to hate God and the neighbor. And how shameful this truth is. We'd hide from God if it were possible. We would take the fig leaves like Adam and Eve did in the garden and turn away from God lest we be found out for how wretched we are by nature. Verse 80, Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. Any deviation from the law of God is filthy and corrupt. And we sense that as the Spirit pricks our hearts. We sense how abominable we are in the sight of God. God in His grace 
then uses the law to reveal to us our need for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The law itself does not save, but the law directs our attention unto the One who does save us from our sins. Paul says, Galatians 3, verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's the remarkable and gracious work of God as God gives unto us the law. The law is to function as our schoolmaster, a teacher. And as that law shows unto us our need, or rather our sins, that law then shows unto us our inability to live in a way which is in accord with the will and the desire of God. And that law then brings us unto, it carries us unto Jesus Christ, who alone is able to deliver us from our sins. The one who will be our Savior must be one who perfectly keeps and who has perfectly kept the law of God. If Jesus Christ at any step along the way had deviated just one iota from the will of God, then Jesus Christ Himself would have become guilty And thus, He would have needed to be delivered from His sin. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ perfectly, with all of His heart, mind, soul, and strength, kept the law of God. And what is at the heart, the essence of the law of God Love. And that's what Christ did at Calvary. In love, He came from heaven, sent from God Himself. And He went from love to love. And the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Thanks be to God for Jesus' perfect adherence to the law. Amen. O Lord our God, who are we that Thou art mindful of us? Or the Son of Man that Thou visitest us? We thank Thee for Thy Word, which directs us unto Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, wilt Thou give us grace that we might walk by faith and not by sight. Wilt Thou encourage us and comfort us with the knowledge of the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ, in whose name alone we pray. Amen.